Church, if you have a copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn, as I invited our first graders, to Genesis 37 this morning. Genesis chapter 37 this morning. Danielle Bell was saying that all of our parents got these smarty representing the, the what, what, did, what does this represent? The days? Weeks. <laughs> the days. A lot of smarties here for the days. The weeks. Eight years ago, we went to a conference, Danielle and I did, and the speaker said the same thing. And at that time, we had a five and a three-year-old. And we came back, and my wife put the smarties and you know, was taking them out. Very powerful symbol to her and to me. And one day, we came home and or I came home and there was a little bit of conversation going on because it was like a fourth field there and so our boys had gotten into them and had just eaten all the smarties out of it and so Danielle's over there crying it was sort of like a living parable of what it was like to parent boys you know like don't you know this represents your life but we like smarties mom we like smarties so be on guard, parents. You will, your children will eat Smarties uh, out from under you there. So I honestly don't know why I just opened that right there. <laughs> I think it's my instinct. I think it's just candy is here. So, you know, you need a mid-pickup sermon inspiration. Just eat a Smartie. Some preachers have water beside them. I just have a... A, a box or, or a, a jar of Smarties right here. So Genesis 37, Genesis 37, it's getting out of hand already. It's getting out of hand. 11 o'clock crowds, always a little rowdier. So Genesis 37, my grandfather was just larger than life in every ways in, in my life. He's going to be with the Lord. My mom's dad, he's a big football player, Forrester, and just one of the greatest male influences in my life. I guess I was five. I, I, I was, it was, you know, you have these indelible impressions of your grandparents. And one of the first memories I have of being next to him and noticing this scar that was sort of protruding out of his collar. And so I said, Granddaddy, how did you get, how did you get that? And he said, well, I had, a, I had surgery. I didn't know what that was. So I asked him, you know, what does, does it hurt? No, it did hurt, but it doesn't hurt now. What is surgery? My, my grandmother chimed in and gave sort of a soliloquy about open-heart surgery. And, and my grandfather had gone through that. This is in the late 70s, and so decades, decades go, go by that he lives. And he, I asked him what really is only appropriate for a five-year-old curious grandson to ask their grandfather, I said, can I see it? And I, I still remember him, unbuttoned, not, not the totality of his shirt, but just those top two buttons and just seeing that that scar just traced down the stomach there, the sternum where they had done the surgery. And I didn't connect all of these dots, but it was one of the first times that I could realize that brokenness could lead to healing that a wound could actually be a good thing, that, that pain could actually in the right hands have 
a purpose that leads to, to hell. And God's word intersects with that theme. And there's probably no better place than the story of Joseph in Genesis 37 all the way to Genesis 50. One-fourth of the book of Genesis is going to lead us down the contours of Joseph's life. Jo- Joseph is this larger-than-life character in so many ways. Historically, Joseph's life is the bridge between the Genesis patriarchs and the Exodus pharaoh. Uh, The story of Joseph tells us how did the Israelites get from Canaan to Egypt? We see the bridge of Joseph's life answering that historically. But but larger than, than that, just bridge from the book of Genesis to the book of Exodus... Joseph teaches us, as a, as a beautiful sermon illustration all throughout uh, of, of his life, Romans 8.28, that he works all things together. The good of those that love him and are called according to his purposes. He, he works everything together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. He, he can even work parental favoritism out for his good. Uh, We see a lot of it. In the first 11 verses of Genesis 37, you see sort of how not to parent your children if you want them to flourish. Just read with me in your copy of God's Word, starting in verse 1. It's really a portrait of the failings of parental favoritism. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilah and Zilpha, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all of his brothers... They hated him. They hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and we told it to his brothers. They hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we're binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brother said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I've dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you've dreamed? Shall I? And your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you. And his brothers were jealous of him. Well, of course they are. Three repetitions here, three times. They hated him, they hated him, they hated him even more. It comes to the crescendo here of verse 11. They were jealous of him. Rage is upon him, but his father kept the saying in mind. We're introduced to Joseph early on in his story. And this is a story of parental favoritism that does no favor to this son. Joseph is 
given not only the, the right of a parental favoritism through the words of his dad, Jacob, but he is given a, a robe to signify it. Now, Jacob knew better than this. Now, you know this about the story. Jacob had parental favoritism in his own life. Esau, his brother, was loved, loved by Isaac. And he was loved by Rebekah. So even in his family of origin, we see how, how Jacob is having to deal and wrestle with what happens when parental favoritism rears its head in his own family of origin. But like Jacob, we too oftentimes intuitively just pass on what we experience in our own lives. So Jacob does this with Joseph. Jacob has him with Rachel. By this point in the narrative, Rachel has passed on. She is dead. So the mother that is in the dream is Leah in the dream. Jacob comes out into the fields. And he, he is a tattletale. It's a snitch from the very outset of the story. But he also wears a, a coat of many colors in the King James Version. In, in the Broadway Version, it is an amazing Technicolor dream coat. I hate to burst any Andrew Lloyd Webber bubbles in this room right here, but, but it, probably, it probably didn't glow in the dark or anything like that. It, it's long robe, ornamented, no doubt, but it, it's what it signified. It, it signified that I'm the boss. I'm the boss. I have two younger brothers. We grew up doing chores. We go up to my dad's house. We had all of these fence posts that we had to dig. You had a fence post digger. You'd go and you'd pull out the... Uh, the dirt, and you'd go to the next, and you go to the next. I was the oldest, and so what I did was to take upon myself what an older brother had the right to do, which was to delegate responsibility to you two younger brothers. And so oftentimes, I would hear this. You're not my boss, David. You're, who, who made you the boss? Well, here's the problem with Joseph, is that his dad made him the boss. And if you want to see sibling, sibling rivalry run amok in a family's life, you have a dad who says, you, son, are going to wear this custom-made suit as your brothers are out in the field. You, son, are going to be in charge. You, son, can tell me what they do wrong. Well, to add some kindling to the sibling rivalry fire, Joseph is a dreamer. Now, God is going to use Joseph's dreams in some amazing ways. But when he's 17 years old, he, like most 17-year-olds, don't have the emotional maturity to know what to do with the gifts that they have. And so what he does when he dreams two dreams, and the essence of both of these dreams are that his brothers and his stepmother and his dad are going to bow down to him. We'll see that this comes to fruition. But in this moment, it's the worst possible thing that he can report to his brothers. And they had had enough. And they'd had enough. Whose fault is this? Is it Joseph's fault? I mean, we get to the end of this character profile of, of this patriarch of the faith, and, and he doesn't come out clean, does he? He doesn't come out looking good in it. He, he looks to be spoiled. He looks to be a person who sees the worst in his brothers around him. He looks to be a person who you would not want to be with. And you could imagine why his brothers would resent him in every way. Whose fault is this? Is it Joseph's? You know, the book of Genesis 
is not a parenting manual. It is not a book that we have seven principles to raise well-adjusted children. But I tell you what the book of Genesis is. It, is. it is true to life, inspired by God, and often the negative examples point to principles that intersect your life and my life. Uh, long before psychologists would coin terms like helicopter parents, lawnmower parents, you have this right here. In God's word, you have a lawnmower parent in Jacob who is going before his son, trying to pave the way so that he does not face any obstacles in life. And his coddling cripples his son. His favoritism ends up being the very raw material that would bring about the sibling rivalry, that would bring about homicidal intentions for Joseph. And I do think it's wise for us to pause. It is wise for us to pause and to say what our coddling could do that could cripple our own children. Jacob makes an idol of Joseph. He makes an idol of Joseph, and there's a temptation for parents in this very room, me being a parent myself, that I fall to this temptation to idolize our children, and and their achievements become what we find our worth in and our identity in. And it's an idol. It's a sinful practice, but not only is it a sinful practice, but church, it's a harmful practice. Someone eventually is going to convince my children and your children that they're not the center of the universe. Someone, it might be a teacher, it might be a coach, it might be a director, it might be a future spouse, is going to eventually convince them that they are not perfect. And it seems that one of the responsibilities of us as parents is to make sure when that conversation sinks in that our children are not surprised by the verdict. Boy, it, it is a tough life when they are the center of the universe and they realize actually they're not the center of the universe. And so here is Joseph having to learn the hard way, the school of hard knocks, is what Joseph is going to have to go through. But what sets him up for that is this parental favoritism that is so evident and so obvious in the pages of God's word here. And so we see that there are consequences that are disastrous. We read about him in Genesis 37, verse 18. Jacob, again, he says to his son Joseph, all of your brothers are out and they're tending the flocks. You need to go because you're, you're the supervisor. You're not out there with them. Of course you would not be out there with them. So you need to go out to Shechem where they have the flocks. And so off Joseph goes with his coat of many colors signifying that he is the boss, that he is the favored child. And you could imagine in verse 18 of Genesis 37, the words that come off the page, they saw him from afar and before he came near to them They conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes the dreamer. Come now. Let's kill him. Let's throw him into one of the pits. They will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. Let's kill him. Reuben, one of the brothers, said, hold on. 
Let's not get too ahead of ourselves. I mean, who, who here wants to really follow through with this plan to go back to dad? You remember dad, this is no doubt that this is his favorite child. I, I know you've got some great plans of how you're going to cover this up, but really do you want that blood to be on your hand or my hand? So how about we do this? Maybe it's a middle way. We throw him down a pit, leave him for dead, and then we can just wash our hands of it. Well, it just so happens that we read in verse 25 after they have thrown him into a pit, they're going to leave him for dead. We read one of the most sobering passages in all of the book of Genesis. Then they sat down to eat. Shows what happens when sin hardens a heart. They, they have done this to their brother, and then they pull out their picnic lunch to eat. Then they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum and balm and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. And they say, hey, we can make some money here. So instead of killing him, he's sold, the prized son is sold into slavery and ends up in Egypt. And we say at this moment, well, this must be the end of Joseph's story. This is a hopeless story. The favored son is now left for dead, being sold into slavery. He is dirty. He is despondent. He has been in the bottom of a pit. He is soaked with blood and despair. There surely can't be any hope after this story, right? But isn't it interesting? The story of Joseph doesn't end in Genesis 37, but we have in Genesis 39 this powerful portrait of God's presence with Joseph even in the midst of his pit. Now, Genesis 38 is an R-rated story. We'll skip over it. We'll come back to it. It's the story of Judah and Tamar, and it's going to interweave its way into the story of Joseph. But the first encounter we have with Joseph after the homicidal plans of his brother, after the treacherous betraying plans of his brother is found in Genesis 39. And surely he's not in a good place. He's just been in Dothan. He's just been in a pit. He's just been pulled out of the pit. He's just been sold into slavery. He's ended up in Egypt. And so surely there can't be anything good that's going to come out of this. But notice the Lord's presence in the midst of our pain, the midst of Joseph's pain. Do you see it? If I, if I just ask you to look at Genesis 39, verses 1 through 3, do, do, do you see it shining off the page of God's Word? Do you see the phrase that sets this section of Scripture apart? Do you see it? You need to underline it. You need to put an asterisk by it. You need to put an exclamation point by it because it is the very hope that Joseph had then and the very hope that we have now that the Lord, verse 2, Genesis 39, was with Joseph. And he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw, notice again, that the Lord was with Joseph, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. Now, I want you to see the paradoxical statements that God's Word is giving us. Joseph had a lousy upbringing, yes, but the Lord was with Joseph. Joseph had parental favoritism run amok, yes, but the Lord was with Joseph. 
Joseph's, Joseph's brothers desire to, to kill him? Yes, but the Lord was with him. Joseph's brothers threw him into a pit in Dothan, but the Lord was with him. Joseph was sold into slavery, but the Lord was with him. Joseph was there working with this Egyptian master, Potiphar, and then Potiphar's wife that we'll read about in the next time that we encounter God's word. But the Lord was with Joseph. And this is what transforms Dothan. This is what transforms the pit is that in the midst of every part of Joseph's story, the Lord was present with him. And if it was true of Joseph then, you who are a child of the Most High God, know that that promise is true for you today, that he would never leave you, nor forsake you, that he would be with you even to the ends of the age, even when you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you do not have to fear evil. Why? For he is with you. His rod and his staff, they comfort you. I love what Tim Keller, the pastor in New York City, Redeemer Presbyterian Church, in a wonderful book that many of you maybe know of. I think you need to know of it. It's not a good book right when you're in the pit, but it is a good, bit, a good book when you have some perspective. And that book is called Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. And it is worth the cost of getting the book only for the chapter endings that his wife, Kathy Keller, pins. He, she, she takes these personal testimonies of God's grace and God's goodness in the midst of horrific evil and, and allows them to be these, these beautiful, shining lights of God's presence. And I love the way Keller says it, that suffering can refine us rather than destroy us because God himself walks with us in the fire. This is what separates this story from just a hopeless story. That God was with Joseph in the midst of Dothan. He was with Joseph in the midst of the pit. And he is with you in the midst of your pain. Your pit. Your despair. But see, this is the promise of this passage. Not only is the Lord's presence in the midst of our pain, but the Lord has a plan for the redemption of your pain. Notice that Dothan, chapter 37, notice that the pit, chapter 37, isn't the final destination for Joseph. It's a thoroughfare. It's on the way to something else that God has in plan. How will Joseph leave Canaan and get to Egypt? Well, in God's sovereign plan, he uses evil, he uses pain, he uses betrayal to get Joseph from God's promised land to where he needed him to be, which is Egypt, which would be a place of strategic influence and strategic purpose. And it is so for you and for me that God uses our pains for a divine purpose. Now, oftentimes, we don't have the narration of God's holy word to give us the insights of how he is doing that in real time. We don't have that. Oftentimes, this side of heaven, we cannot discern the ways that God is working all things together for good. But even when we cannot discern that, we know that to be true because his word is true. That even in the background, when we don't have the eyes to see and only when we see as if a veil is before us, we can trust that our pains are not wasted, our wounds have a purpose, and that he desires to work even, even divorce, even death, even diagnosis, even betrayal, 
even a business partnership that did not work out, even a, a prodigal son or a prodigal daughter that has still not come home, what is your hope in the midst of your dothan? It is that God is with you and that he has promised to never waste our wounds. That God in his sovereign will gets Joseph to the place where he is going to be strategically placed in Egypt. And he does that through a pit. Now some of you say, man, this is, this is great as a sermon. And it's great, great as rhetoric. But my pit is a pit that if you were really to know, you wouldn't say that. If you knew what I have faced, if you know what I am facing, if you know what I could face, you could not say that with such boldness. And I'm here to just remind you of this glorious gospel-saturated fact that none of our pits are too deep for God to take that deep pain and redeem it for his purpose because he is a God who is a father who would send his son to die the cruelest death. And the worst imaginable thing that has ever occurred in the universe happened to a father, and that is God our Father. And if God the Father can redeem a cruel, coarse Roman cross to be the access that we have to have a relationship with him, that by his wounds we are healed. By the cross of Christ Jesus, the bridge is provided for us sinful humanity to walk in step with a holy God. If he can do that with the tragedy of the cross, do you not think that he can do that with any and every pain and dothan that you experience this side of heaven? He can, child of God. He is with you in the midst of your pain. But he redeems your pain for a glorious purpose. And sometimes we do not know what that purpose is this side of heaven. But even when we cannot see, we trust. Even when we do not know, we trust. Because he is good even in the midst of the pain. He is good even in the midst of the pit. He is good even in the midst of the hellish experiences that you might have that are evil in every way. But he is redeeming. trust him that you're not alone even in the pit today will you lean on him will you worship him will you look to him will you believe that he will never waste your wounds Dothan it's not a final destination it's a pathway, it's a thoroughfare to where God wants to bring you to, a place of healing and a place of use. Let us pray. Gracious God, we come to you this morning grateful for your word, a word that speaks to our hearts. Lord, there is no doubt that there are those in this very room, this very sanctuary, who are experiencing pain and difficulty in ways that I and those that are even around them that know the details cannot 
empathize with. We can't walk that path, but thank you, God, that in sending your son, he knows what it is to, to weep. He knows what it is to, to die. He knows what it is to hurt. He knows what it is to experience loss. That There's nothing that befalls us that has not been absorbed and felt by your son, Jesus Christ, in his human life and upon the cross. So we are comforted that we are not alone in our pain. And we are comforted that, that you work all things together, e- even in the story of Joseph, as we, as we will trace the contours of this story. We believe it even when we can't feel it. We believe it even when we can't see it. That you're good, and our pains have a purpose, and you never waste our wounds. Give us faith. Even when we don't feel that truth, give us faith even when we can't discern the contours of how that's working in our own pit. It's in your name we pray.